Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. Renaissance man is a is an overworked phrase, and particularly when it comes to journalists. But it's pretty apt when you think about Frank Bruni, uh, the national columnist for the New York Times. Frank has done just about everything that you can do uh, in reporting. He's been a war correspondent, a movie critic. He's covered Congress, the George W. Bush uh, campaign for president. He's written books. Uh, on subject as uh, varied as uh, pedophilia and the scandal in the Catholic Church, uh, and college admissions and the pressures and anxieties that young people uh, feel today as they apply uh, to uh, to college. And lately, he's written extensively about this crazy 2016 campaign. Um, I sat down the other day to talk to Frank about his career, uh, some of the uh, incredible stories he's covered. Uh, and some of the characters who are uh, populating our public scene today. Frank Bruni, it's really a pleasure to have you here, have you at the Institute of Politics and have you uh, here today. I, I, in getting ready for this conversation, I reviewed your career, and it's kind of a, a, a dizzying travelogue of interesting places and experiences. So I just want to run through some of that. There's so much to talk about in terms of where we are as a country right now, but I want to talk about where you've been as a, <laughs> as a journalist. Uh, first of all, did you, you were raised in New York, in the suburbs of New York. Did you always know you wanted to be a journalist? No, not at all. I always liked writing, um, and it was always kind of a hobby during school. You know, when you have your extracurricular activities, mine tended to revolve around writing, that and swimming. Um, but I didn't, until I was in college, I don't think I began thinking, oh, maybe journalism is a career. And even in college, it still felt more, more like a hobby. And what about it attracted you? I, writing, first of all. I, I like the challenge of, of trying to describe something, whether you're trying to describe your own thoughts in a memoir or whether you're trying to describe a human being you're observing. I find that challenge of gathering details and trying to render them in a lively and compelling way. I love that. Um, and I think that was my primary interest in journalism. And then as I began to do journalism, I realized that it is the most amazing passport into experiences. I mean, you know this very, very well, um, into experiences, situations where you really should not have any invitation or place. You, right. know, you get to be a fly on some of the most fascinating walls. And, and I think one of the reasons my career has been such a bizarre collection of experiences is because I've always felt I wanted to use that passport to travel to as many different kinds of circumstances as I could. You started at the New York Post yeah. uh, talking about interesting experiences. You know, when I was growing up in New York City, the Post was sort of the pillar of liberalism, mm -hmm. Dorothy Schiff and, um, you know, this my 
my folks came from that bent. And so, you know, my mother would take the New York Post editorial in when she voted, uh, which she probably wouldn't have done were she around today. Um, And congratulations to the New York Post on their candidate becoming the official nominee of the Republican <laughs> of the Republican Party. What was uh, what was it like working for the Post back then when you started, which was in uh, the early 90s, right? Late I, 80s, I was early there, 90s? Boy, I, uh, it was, I think I was there 80, 88 to yeah. nine, like a year and a half, like 88 to 90. Um, it was a really odd time because the Post was still what the Post had become and what the Post is now. It was a racy tabloid to some degree. But it was this strange uh, short period when a woman named Jane Amsterdam, who'd been at the Washington Post, was hired to be the editor. And the Post was trying to be a little bit more somber, a little bit more sober, and compete with the Daily News in that way. So they hired a bunch of reporters who weren't classic tabloid reporters, including me. And we were supposed to certainly write in a Postian way, but not go all the way. I mean, Hmm. you you still didn't say the mayor, you said his honor. And you saved you literally saved words by saying top cop Benjamin Ward rather than police commissioner. Mm -hmm. But other than that, they were trying to do sorts of features uh, and stuff that hadn't normally been in their wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And then they abandoned that. And you, and you left and you went to Detroit. I went to the Detroit free press. Yeah. Um, I knew that I didn't want to be a tabloid reporter. I knew that uh, being at the post would teach me some good things, but if I stayed there too long, other papers might, uh, be wary of me because the post was a tabloid. So I kind of made a deal with myself that I would stay no longer than two years. And I left after about a year and a half um, and went to the Detroit Free Press to kind of cleanse myself in the waters of Knight Ritter. Uh-huh. And in a, in, a, in a town that had a whole lot of problems. Oh, yeah. <laughs> had? Still yeah. has. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Detroit's a fascinating place to be a journalist. I didn't cover urban affairs. I did a lot of AIDS reporting then. Um, I did some war reporting then for Knight Ritter. Yeah, but, I saw um, that, the Persian Gulf War. Yeah, yeah. That was a really odd thing where I went over there with one assignment, and then it ended up morphing into something else. I was supposed to go over for a couple of weeks and write uh, short features about uh, troops who were from cities where Knight Ritter had papers. So I was supposed to like, kind of find soldiers who were from a town where the Knight Ritter had a paper and write an 800-word postcard. And then I ended up being in country long enough that when they stopped letting journalists in, Knight Ritter couldn't afford to have me pull back out. So then I ended up morphing into someone who was actually embedded with a cavalry unit for the ground war that never was. And how, and how is that experience? How, that, how, was that a formative experience for you? It was a, it was a, yes, it was a scary experience, I'll tell you, because I remember my, my cavalry unit ended up not seeing any action, but it was supposed to be one of the first to engage the then believed to be fearsome Iraqi Republican Guard, I think they were called, I can't even remember. And I remember being called into a briefing, uh, I and about uh, six other journalists were going to be embedded with that, and we were told you were going to be in one of the most dangerous places, and there is no dishonor in saying right now um, that you uh, that you want to take a pass because there are plenty of people who'd be happy to take your place. Did you think about it? Oh, absolutely. I and I was shocked that I didn't take it, that I didn't say, <laughs> okay, you can have my place because I'm not I'm not built that way. But I just I found I couldn't do it. I couldn't I couldn't be invited into again a circumstance that would be fascinating to behold and then say no 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 that's not for me. You also wrote a book uh, during that period when you were at the D- Detroit. Uh, 
uh, free press. Uh, and talk talk about that. It, it had to do with the sex scandal in the church, the yeah. pedophilia, and so yeah, on. Yeah, many, many years before the events that were described in Spotlight, for example. there was as, And to Spotlight's credit, the movie Spotlight, um, it acknowledges that the Boston Globe was sort of late to the story, which it then did better than anyone had ever done it, but it was many years late. And they say that in the movie. Um, I had done some very risky kind of trailblazing reporting on uh, pedophilia. Uh, and I had a friend who was living in Miami and had met a number of young men there who had been sexually abused by priests when they were altar boys. Um, and between the two of us, we became fascinated with uh, that topic, with what was emerging as a problem for the Catholic Church. And so, you know, using very old-style reporting techniques, um, there was no internet then, so we had to do all of these Nexus-Lexus database searches, putting in molest and church and this, and we actually came up with a kind of huge map of the U.S. and where all these cases had been, uh, and we wrote a book about what was already an epidemic of child sexual abuse by Catholic priests. You're, you're, you're gay. Yeah. What did? How did... How did you relate to this story from that perspective? Uh, and uh, were there personal experiences that led you to the story? There were no personal experiences that led me to it. It's an interesting question because actually the way I began to report on pedophilia, which is, of course, completely different from homosexuality. Of course. Um, but the way I began, began, began to report on it is an editor at the Detroit Free Press at the time, because I was writing about gay issues, passed me a letter that the paper had received from a convicted child molester who was in prison who became the subject of a long story I did. And she said, these issues interest you. Um, and I think if someone did that today, that yeah, editor would get a talking to. But I, I understood. I mean, I kind of rolled my eyes. I thought, well, these things aren't equatable. But I was interested in it just as a study of human nature. When it comes to— I the, just wondered about it from the standpoint of how the two did get conflated and maybe well, the interest in it can sort be of very, deconflating them. Well, it can be very complicated, and the, and, the, and the epidemic of sexual abuse by Catholic priests is a perfect example of that. Priests who have sexually abused— um, uh, teenagers of the same age as, say, the, the teenagers that Den Denny Hastert molested. Um, some of those teenagers are so on the cusp of the legal age and manhood that what you have going on there isn't a pedophile acting on pedophilia. You have an incredibly sexually repressed, sexually un underdeveloped or whatever, um, repressed gay person who, uh, when it finally comes out, is is choosing very inappropriate partners um, who are physically sexually mature but are not able to consent. And that is a weird way in which homosexuality is bleeding into a situation that is legally impermissible um, and morally impermissible. There's a whole other class of child abusers um, who are real true pedophiles. They want, uh, they are sexually attracted to beings who have not yet reached you know, full sexual adulthood or not all the way through puberty, and that's a whole different thing, they all end up being caught together in laws that absolutely correctly say, below a certain age, you are unable to consent fully to a sexual experience with an adult, and that adult thus is legally uh, bound, you know, not to reach out sexually and touch you. The, um, uh, the victimization of these kids, though, was obviously something that you delved into what was the impact of that on um because you said you harrowing, saw the young, the young, harrowing harrowing yeah. because he, here's why i think that story was and remains such a compelling one you are not only having your trust violated by an adult you're having your trust violated yeah. by your sort of emissary to god right you're having your trust violated by someone who is supposed to be 
um, an example of and a guide toward all that is right and true and moral. Um, and when that person says, when that person uses the incredible degree of moral suasion that he has to convince you that what's going on is right, I mean, that is, when we talk about uh, an imbalance of power, I can think of no imbalance more profound than that between a child raised in a devout Catholic family and a priest wearing a collar. Right, and, and, and probably the, the, the enormous uh, sense of guilt that the child feels if in wanting to, I mean, how do you report on, on the priest? I mean, it's... Well, that, that's why it went on so long. It was a sort of a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. You know, you had an adult who had more sway than anyone else. You had a child living often, and Spotlight, again, to cite that movie, got this very right, living in a culture... Um, where back then you weren't supposed to say anything bad about the church. There's a great line in Spotlight where a mother who had a, an abused kid is being interviewed um, by, I think, the Rachel McAdams character. And she's at, she talks about the bishop coming by and saying, let's not say anything to the public about what happened with the priest and your child. And Rachel McAdams said, what did your mother do? Uh, I mean, what, what, did, yeah, what did your mother do? And the, the guy says, put out cookies. You know, that's you were yeah. in such a humble, deferential posture when it came to church leadership. Now that's all changed. I mean, it's all changed. But it took decades for that to change. What do you think about this pope relative to this issue? Do you think that he has done enough? I think this pope, uh, I don't think any pope has ever done enough, including this pope. But I think this pope came in at a moment when the Catholic Church all the way up to the top had finally fully accepted this. So I don't think he's trying to hide it. I think those days are long over. Um, but he came in very, very late into this. They'd been grappling with this for almost a quarter century by the time he came along. You, uh, uh, you came to the New York Times in the mid-90s. Uh, you spent uh, time on the Metro desk. Um, and then, um, uh, and then ultimately you ended up in Washington. Uh, were you eager to get into that kind of reporting? No, no, I had never thought I would be. I love writing about politics now, um, and it's been one of the kind of nicest things that's happened. It was never something that was in my sights. Um, back then, less than now, I mean, now, like all young reporters I meet want to be on the trail. They want to be political reporters. It wasn't quite as voguish back then, and I'd never thought of it. What happened in my case was I had uh, developed something of a reputation and a role on the Metro desk for writing long profiles. Um, and I did the paper's long profiles of Ruth Messenger when she was running against Rudy Giuliani. I just Rudy saw your Giuliani. piece on Jody Foster, uh, by yeah. the way, which was... Really, oh, really thank a you, great thank read. you. Um, and then I did the papers long profiles of Chuck Schumer when he was running against Alphonse D'Amato. So it was through long news feature profiles that they said, "Well, wait a second, you also seem." It was Mike Oreskes who was then working at the Times, who said, "You also actually seem to have a decent ear and understanding of politics, rather than just being this feature writer who comes in and does profiles. Why don't we actually have you write about politics?" Um, most of the time. Did Schumer mention to you that he got 800 on the SAT? I can't remember if that, he did uh, back then, but uh, uh, he's... Uh, seems to find its way into all his profiles. Not, he's not the most modest man. Uh, <laughs> and But then you went and covered Congress for a while. I covered Congress for a while, and then when I was in Congress, they asked me if I would cover the Bush campaign, and then I covered the Bush campaign. Yeah, and you ended up writing a book about that campaign in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. What, what were your impressions of, uh, of George W. Bush? I have my own, which I will share with you, but I... Uh, that are that surprised me. Right. But what were your impressions of him? Well, to to me, the impression that that was strongest, or the thing that fascinated me the most, was how ill suited he was 
in some ways to what he had set his ambitions and his mind on. When you met him, when you talked with him in an informal setting, if he were the fourth person at this table um, and he was having a conversation without a microphone, without a podium, um, without any particular need to impress, you would find him to be a lively conversationalist and you would probably be surprised by how intellectually nimble he seemed. Intellectually is not the right word, but you know, yeah. just kind of how, how, how sharp, yeah, how sharp yeah. he seemed. As soon as you put him in front of a teleprompter, as soon as you put him in a formal situation, as soon as you put him on a debate stage, the worst side of him came out. And it was always so fascinating to me that he chose to do something that required him to be in all of these situations and work in this idiom that was actually not his strongest suit and wasn't even the suit that he had the most appreciation for. He found the pomp element of politics to be, you know, you worked with President Obama. He finds the sausage making and the cruddy deals and the backroom stuff, he finds all of that very distasteful. George W. Bush's version of that was anything that had any pomp to it. He hated that. Mm -hmm. Both men have very conflicted relationships with the political trade that they entered. But one of them, one of them didn't have a father uh, to speak of because his father left him. The other one had a father who was president of the United States. Right. I'm really interested in, I think there's a whole book, and you could be the guy who, who, who could write it. You'd do a great, wonderful book on this. But the whole, there, there's a study to be done on fathers and sons in politics. Um, um, it's funny that you say that because actually I'm under contract to do that exact book, but we're talking about maybe not doing it. Is that right? That's correct. Why? Why don't you want to do it? Uh, there's just some other ideas that I we see. maybe. But but, but I, I've, actually, I've actually been working on that. So as you're saying this, and and funnily, one of the things I've noticed, and I've always wanted to talk to you about, um, is and that I've never seen anyone put together or write at length about is there on the Obama campaign, you, President Obama, and Joel Benenson all had the experience of losing fathers early or not having mm -hmm. fathers be present. I've always wondered if that was a sort of private vocabulary the three of you had. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that we ever explicitly spoke about it, but I but I was always interested in why Obama, who had lost his dad, um, was more secure in many ways than any other politician I'd ever dealt with because, um, you know, your father leaves you, you, you think you'd be hungry for approbation, and... Um, and he, you know, he, he didn't have that gene, which really separated him a lot from uh, some of the others. You know, that to me is one of the destructive qualities that people can have in politics, that they want approbation so much that they're willing to do almost anything to get it. And that the withdrawal of approbation, meaning making an unpopular decision, uh, is crippling, right. you know, uh, for them. He doesn't have that. And I think it's one of the reasons why he's been... Uh, successful, but uh, but I, but in terms of fathers and sons, I look at a Mitt Romney and Al Gore, uh, the Bushes, and many others. I, I, I've watched some, I've worked with, and reported on. Um, and there's a definite dynamic between father and son, where the sons almost always embrace, in some way, the legacy and the, uh, the of the father, but also fight it and rebel against it. Bush being the perfect example of that. I mean, his his desire for the presidency was absolutely tied into proving once and for all to dad how worthy he was, and yet he got there, and he wanted to. He often used his father's uh, presidency as a reverse playbook. 
So, I mean, that was really, when we talk about embrace and push away at the same time, in that one man, you saw that exact duality. You know where I saw this? Uh, I, also here in Chicago, Richard M. Daly was, uh, became mayor a, a, after his father, Richard J. Daly. Richard J. Daly was very much identified with uh, the 68 convention and some of the racial tensions of the 60s and so on. Uh, Rich Daly got elected at a time of great racial turmoil in the city and became kind of a bridge between black and white community. His father wanted to build an airport in the lake. Rich Daly uh, tore up the one airport that was on the lake, the small airport, and put a park there. So interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, it was like there's so many ways. And he would never say... He would, you know, he would only revere his father, you know, if you talk to him. But then you watch it how he governed, and it was almost as if I'm going to show that I can do it better, right. differently, right. and so on. And didn't you feel some of that as you watched Bush govern? Uh, I did. I don't think he necessarily did do it. I mean, my view... No, of, the desire to do it differently Oh, yeah, better, absolutely. Not, I'm not saying he did it totally. better. Totally. But the notion that he could do it better if he did it differently. I totally, I totally saw it that way. You know, my uh, feeling about... I only was exposed to him in the uh, transition between the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And I had this one interaction with Bush. He was, they were very good to us in the, very, very good to us in the transition, gave us everything, couldn't have been more friendly. Ed Gillespie, my opposite number, brought me in and we spent a couple of hours. He talked about the job. Uh, it was really, really helpful. But I said to, uh, but on the day of the inauguration, I, uh, I ran into George W. Bush, President Bush, and I, I said, President Bush, I've been on television this morning, and I've been talking about you, and I want to tell you what I said. He said, I don't watch TV. And I said, well, let me tell you what I said. I, I, you, the way you guys handled this transition was an act of true patriotism and really appreciated it. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, Axelrod, right, I've been watching you. And I didn't know whether he was going to punch me in the face or what. <laughs> and he said, uh, and I think you're all right. He said, he says, and I just want to give you one bit of advice. He said, you're in for the ride of your life. And he said, uh, he said, just take it every minute. He said, because it'll go by faster than you imagine. It was really an amazing moment. And I, and I always heard from people who work for him how much they liked him and how good he was to them. And I saw that quality. It doesn't change my view of his presidency, right, right, which right. I think was in many ways disastrous. Right. But it's an important lesson in that we can't reduce people to these no. caricatures uh, because he obviously has some really, really good personal qualities. I think in the private sphere, he's always been known to be a very decent man. Yeah, uh, um, yeah but I mean, politically... <laughs> There were some decisions made there. There were some directions in which the country went that, you know, we're still recovering from. And may for for generations yes. to come. Yeah. You um you were obviously around uh, during that uh that historic end of the 2000 election. Yeah, I was in Austin, yeah. And um how 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 much damage when you look at the kind of political environment today, how much of it is traceable back to that event? The way that election ended the recount in the Supreme Court. Uh, how much in terms of the coarseness of our politics, the cynicism about our politics traces back to that moment? I, I don't think you can trace it back to that one moment, but I think that one moment is the biggest one on the timeline that brought us here. And I wrote a column recently about sort of sore losing in politics. Yes, I saw that. And I mentioned that moment because I do think it, it's a, it was a sort of 
high point or low point of distrust between the two parties. Um, but I think it's on a continuum and on a timeline that includes some of the Supreme Court hearings that preceded it under his dad. Yes. Um, I think we're, we're now at a point where um, it's very rare for either side to trust uh, the integrity of the good intentions of the other side. There's a feeling among partisans on both sides um, that there are partisans on the other side who will do anything to prevail um, and put winning well above any national interest or patriotism or anything like that. And no one seems to accept any result as legitimate. And I think that that dynamic, not accepting a result as legitimate, I think that got um, enormous uh, oxygen from what happened in the recount in the Supreme Court ending up deciding that. Which is pernicious for a democracy. Oh, yeah. People start doubting the legitimacy of decisions. And we see it playing out now with the empty Supreme Court seat and the unwillingness to confirm someone. But we see see it in some of the ways in which Bernie Sanders has responded to what is clearly going to be his defeat. Um, It's not just, no, 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 I'm going to prevail as a sort of like kind of act of willed confidence. It's, well, if you look at this region had too much power, this manner of voting isn't as reflective of the popular will as this other manner of voting. When you say all that, you're basically delegitimizing the victor in a way that I think makes it very difficult for anyone to govern. And you see it too on the the Republican side. I mean, now we're left today as we sit here, astonishingly with just Donald Trump. But in recent weeks, that wasn't clearly going to be the case. And you saw Ted Cruz building an argument that he could go into the convention with much less demonstrated popular support and yet be the rightful victor. I don't know how you reason that way, but again, it's they're, 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 they're casting doubt on the very sort of functioning of the democracy um, in a way that I think when everything is settled or rather never settled makes it really hard to govern. Well, of course, both uh, Cruz, I'm, I'm sorry, both Trump and Sanders have kind of capitalized on that sense of the system being rigged, of the of, of uh, uh, delegitimization, uh, and in I think had the Republican Party uh, decided to move forward, uh, if Trump had stopped just short of uh, of the uh, appointed number uh, of delegates, twenty one thirty seven, uh, and and named someone else's nominee, uh, I think. They would have faced uh, an enormous backlash, an enormous backlash. I think I think they knew that. Um, I mean, in fact, when you talked to Republican insiders about the argument for doing precisely that, if Trump didn't get to the majority and say having Cruz or someone else come in, the argument wasn't this is going to enable us to win the White House. The argument was we've lost the White House. Right. We've lost the White House with Trump as our nominee. We've lost the White House if we kind of find a way to subvert Trump at the very end. Let's save the Senate. Right. And that and that that has been the concern that if Cruz had been the nominee, they might have been able to keep their Senate majority, and with Trump as the nominee, they might not be able to. And what they're all trying to figure out now, that Trump is the nominee or the presumptive nominee, is can they save the Senate? Right. I, I think there's another issue here, which is that there's been this ongoing debate between Republican within the Republican Party between the conservative base of the party that Cruz uh, represented uh, and uh, the. Uh, the center-right, sort of more corporate uh, base of the party. Uh, The argument on the right being that we keep nominating these moderate Republicans posing as conservatives, uh, Romney, uh, McCain, uh, you know, even George W. Bush. uh, And uh, we end up, although Bush won, but that's why we've lost the last two elections. And if we nominated a legitimate conservative, uh, well, this is not television, but Frank right. is not uh, gest- uh, signaling his uh, 
his uh, approval of this <laughs> argument here or his agreement it's, it, with this argument. It, well, no, I'm, I'm well familiar with the argument. Yeah. Um, and in fact, some Republicans I've talked to, they wanted Cruz to be the nominee. Right, that's, that's where I was going. So, so, so that he... So that to have he, this fight. So finally. that when he lost, this argument would be put to bed forevermore. But, you know, isn't it... Isn't the opposite true if now with Trump as the nominee, that if they lose, and right now you would bet on that result. Yes. You know, it's hard to bet against Donald Trump these days. I'm a little leery of it myself, having been one of the geniuses who predicted that uh, he would be gone by winter. But it seems that he is more likely to lose than win. Yes. If he does, it doesn't really resolve the internal no. civil war in the Republican Party. You're still going to have you're going to have conservatives saying. It's those guys, those those center-right corporate Republicans who were responsible for this mess. The same will be true, pointed the other way. And you'll have another four years of civil war. It will resolve nothing because Trump's collection of positions doesn't fit either of those paradigms. You know, right. I mean, so there's not going to be any way to extrapolate from what happens to Trump in a way that resolves that dispute. It's really interesting right now to see what's happening between, for lack of better terms, the corporate wing of the Republican Party and the rest of it. I keep looking at the South, you know, where we're seeing all of these uh, fights around gay rights. Um, and you have corporations, corporations which have often been very friendly to the Republican Party, taking a stand um, against, against Republican politicians and saying no for matters of, for whatever reason. So in Georgia, you had a Republican governor veto legislation that was very much wanted by the kind of Republicans Ted Cruz was appealing to mm -hmm. because the business interests of Georgia said no way. Don't do it. That's, it's interesting to see that fault line opening the Republican Party over social issues, particularly gay rights, between the corporate wing of the party and the Ted Cruz wing. Well, it's been true for some time that the corporate wing of the party has sort of quietly acceded to the social uh, agenda of the right, the evangelical community, right. as a way of right. keeping Republican voters in are the they, Are they not going to do that corral. anymore is my question. Are they becoming less comfortable doing that? Yeah. Which would make a sort of sense given the way society has evolved. But it does, but it does create this fissure in the Republican Party. Uh, you know, my question, people, we, we, I was on CNN the other night talking about the result, and the question was, you know, how does Trump unify the party. The question is really, how do you unify a party that has such fundamentally different views? Yes. You know, you've got a populist wing of the party that is virulently anti-trade, anti-immigration reform. You've got a corporate wing of the party that is 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 just as as vehemently pro-trade and pro-immigration uh, reform, and and is 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 moderate or to or indifferent at best to a lot of these social issues that that motivate evangelicals. Uh, I just uh, you know I'm not sure anybody can unify a party like that. I agree with you 100. percent I think everyone's asking the wrong question. I don't think the question is can Trump unify this party, which, as you say, is in such a state of disunity? I think the question is, can he cobble together an entirely new kind of coalition that actually becomes the new Republican template? Yeah. But um, given the changing nature of the, the... I mean, given the changing demography of the country, it's hard to see uh, patching together a majority party in this country that excludes Hispanics, for example, and he's got more reparation to do among among that group right. uh, than right. is possible. I mean, he's got an 80% or right. something disapproval rating, and he can't really walk away from his immigration uh, position. It I is mean, hard to, to see people, how, if he, yeah. he's, They're expecting that wall, man, and yeah. they're, 
Um, and, uh, you know, there's several other positions like that. I just think it's a big game of twister, and at some point you, you just tip over. Well, you know, you mentioned Bush before. They were concerned in 2000, and he won over 40% of the Hispanic vote, I think. Yeah. But they were concerned in 2000 about these demographic trends, and they felt very strongly and talked all the time about the need to find a way to appeal to enough Hispanic voters. Well, that population of voters has grown since then. Yes. There are more voters of color. And will continue yeah, to. Yeah, and, 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 and yet... Republicans are losing the ground that Karl Rove and George Bush, when they looked at Hispanic voters, were trying so were were gaining and trying so hard to plot a future. They they thought they could make a values argument that was going to be so appealing to Hispanic voters that they could actually build on that whatever forty something percent. And the party instead has fallen way way back. Yeah, well, you know, the autopsy that was done after the 2012 primary was explicit on the need to build a stronger relationship with the Hispanic community. And, and specifically by in endorsing immigration reform, build a stronger relationship with women. Trump is currently losing among women by 26 points. Yeah. I mean, just to put that in perspective, President Obama won by 11 points among women in 2012 and build a strong relationship, a relationship among young people. Yeah. And for all the problems that Hillary Clinton is having with young people against Bernie Sanders, you look at these general election polls right. and the numbers kind of invert. That's why it's hard to see how he wins this thing. I mean, you've gone through all these different voting blocks that are, that right now um, are so heavily in her favor. And it is hard to see how Trump, given everything he said, given everything he's done, how he moves those numbers in a, in a significant enough way. That said, I think one of, the, one of the answers we'll get or one of the things we'll learn in this election is just how short people's attention spans have become. The thing I find so interesting about Trump and about this particular presidential cycle in terms of the news is the metabolism of events has never been faster. Yeah. And I find people who've forgotten that Trump questioned Obama about his birth certificate, who've forgotten that Trump said there were all these Muslims um, celebrating in New Jersey. There was an interesting Washington Post editorial not long ago where it was like literally sort of remember. And it was a list of all the things you should never forget. And in the same couple of days, Dana Milbank of the Post wrote a similar thing. I saw this all over the media. And I realized what was interesting about it is it was those things were all written out of fear. I think everyone worries that we have become such a 140-character yeah, staccato, Snapchat, no, Instagram tw Twitter, society. Twitter yeah. is like... Uh, Twitter's yesterday, you know. Right. Today, you know, you, the, these these things vanish. Uh, they literally right. vanish after right. and a Trump, short period of time. And Trump has no problem. Like, he'll say something on a Tuesday, and on a Friday he'll say something different, and when he's challenged on it, he just doesn't care. It's not that he's a dumb man. I think he's betting that nobody really has a memory and everyone judges in the instant. And so now, as he tries to craft some sort of general election strategy, the really big question is, Will he be haunted by all those things you and I are making reference to, or have we actually entered this utter this moment that's so utterly ahistorical? And as the metabolism of events becomes so fast that Donald Trump can behave in a certain way for just the relevant two months, and that makes a difference. Yeah, well, but it seems that people, it, it, that is the question. I, I don't know, I think that he's an ultimate marketer, and he understands what each moment demands, and he doesn't much worry about uh, the consistency between we're talking about a guy who uh, accused Ted Cruz's father of being involved in the <laughs> Kennedy assassination in the morning and yesterday then, and, yeah and then in the evening said that Cruz had a bright future uh, so 
you know, he, he's, he's definitely agile in that regard, flexible uh, in that regard. But what he does communicate in all cases and what is consistent is this very basic sense of uh, I've got this, the strength. It's the apprentice persona. You know, you got a problem, I can solve it. And deals, deals, deals. You know, I wrote a piece for your newspaper about this, about the fact that I think we run in cycles. And, uh, you know, it's what I call the replica remedy uh, view of politi- of presidential succession. So the, the outgoing president defines the next election. Right. There was no one more antithetical to George W. Bush in 2008 than Barack Obama. And there really is nobody more antithetical to, uh, to, to Obama and sort of nuanced uh, kind of deliberate way in which he governs than uh, Donald Trump. I think people wanted in 2008 someone who saw the nuance, who saw the complexity, who could deal with it, who wasn't as bombastic and confrontational. I think that they've tired of that. Even as Obama rises in public esteem, I think in part because of this election and and largely because of things he's done, but... um, that was, that was a great piece you wrote, but by the lo- I loved that piece. But by the logic of that piece, Trump has a chance. No, I, I listen. The piece has held up, right? <laughs> He's the nominee of the party. The the the, the uh, mitigating factor is that I think that Hillary Clinton, in many ways, um, is also an anti-Obama. Not in the position she takes, but in her style. She's not as uh, she's not as nuanced. She's much more she, direct in her. Uh, in her uh, statements and so on. I've always felt that, you know, that's why she was, that's part of the reason why she was not successful in 2008. She was too much like what the the status quo uh, in 2008. So she may be able to survive that. And and I think the demographics overwhelm some of this. So, uh, you know, I don't want to over, I don't want to beat my own thing uh, to death here. But the point is Donald Trump does project to a country, and particularly to people who are feeling besieged, who are tired and frightened about some of the uncertainty in the world, um, there is a comfort in a guy who comes forward and says, I got this. Don't worry about it. We're going to take care of it. Chinese aren't going to take advantages of, of us anymore. You know, we're not going to let people uh, breach our borders. We're not going to, you know, all of that. Uh, there is a market for that. Incredible security to an insecure nation. Absolutely. I mean, the other, the other question is, uh, you know, I'm constantly surprised by the number of more or less reasonable people I meet who have a flirtation with Trump. I mean, they they they're considering it. They find something appealing, and when you grill them, it all boils down to they have lost so much faith in the system working in an effective way that they just want to light a match to it. Trump's the match. Yes. And they really, and they are willing. Uh, John Huntsman sitting right in that chair who is, you know, pro, former ambassador to China, pro-trade, pro-immigration reform. In almost every way, he has a different view than Donald Trump. And he said exactly what you just said. Right. The only way we get change is to throw all the pieces up in the air. And Hillary can't do that. And, and Donald Trump can. That's that, that's what I hear them saying. And as they when they say that, the issues become unimportant. Trump's worst moments become unimportant. All of those things are forgivable because he is the vessel for something else, which is pure disruption. Yeah. Um, that's one point 
in yeah. his favor, so to speak, if we we're talking about there odds. Is, and I think that's what this election at some level comes down to is stability versus disruption. And uh, when you're talking about the presidency, that's a fairly significant yes. question. Because a disruptor in that office, to the degree that Trump uh, would be, um, has really grave implications. Absolutely. And it's also at what price disruption. You know, when I have this conversation with people, I say, I totally understand and sympathize with your desire to have something that in which the pieces are all rearranged. But you have to look at the agent of that rearrangement. I mean, that matters. That's not incidental. Um, and as you and I have talked about, I mean, this is someone who, when he utters the sorts of things that he now utters out on the campaign trail from the Oval Office, if he's there, what does that do in and to the world? Right. It's, it's, it can be chilling to think about. Frank, uh, before we leave the subject of this campaign, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way the campaign has been covered. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been brooded about a lot. Uh, and uh, there are those who uh, attribute Trump's rise to the way it's been covered. Right. To the you, you wrote about the sort of symbiotic relationship between Trump and the media, this, the addiction that he has to the media and that the media has to him. How, how much has that been part of his rise? You know, I, I'm never sure of that because Trump has dominated the media. I mean, there's been any number of statistics, numbers about how many hours of coverage he's gotten. But what, what I think sometimes gets forgotten as the media enters this round of sort of, you know, mea culpas, et cetera, most of the coverage of Trump has been negative. You know, I mean, if if the coverage is what has lofted him to this position, then we're sort of saying that the, the coverage does the nature of it doesn't matter. I mean, I remember the beginning when Trump was, you know, when we were first kind of like really getting into this we campaign, the, the, de- the debates. I mean, it, the campaign started out all the stu- all the stories were about Mexican rapists, mm-hmm. right, or his claim that the, that you know. Then we quickly pivoted into Megyn Kelly having uh, blood coming out of wherever. Then we quickly pivoted into the fictive scenario of the Muslim celebrating in Jersey City when the Twin Towers came down. I mean, these were the stories. And yes, with these stories, he was dominating the news cycle. And but but it was all negative. You know, so I, I don't. I have trouble with the notion that the media is to blame here. Um, we may have not allowed other candidates to get enough oxygen or enough camera time for anyone to see the alternatives clearly. But we didn't, I think, rosy up Trump. Not At least most of the media didn't. Yeah. I, I wonder whether, uh, obviously, some of the examples you chose were very, uh, were, were the most extreme examples and the ones that got a lot of attention. But in the aggregate, uh, I wonder if it all kind of contributed to the notion of a guy who is just willing to give uh, the elites and the establishment, the finger, you know, right. just a guy, uh, I, you know, um, I used to joke that he's the first digital candidate because he was always giving the media the finger, you know. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, he also, obviously, he is the first Twitter candidate and he's used Twitter. Very much so, yeah. But uh, but there, but the, the aggregate impression was, I'm going to say whatever the hell I want. I'm tired, you know, it's the whole, I'm tired of political correctness. Right. And I think that in certain ways... Uh, accentuated this quality you spoke of before that people see, which is, look, I don't like a lot of it, but at least I know this guy's going to really shake things up. He's not going to play it by the book, and that's what we need right now. Right. Well, one, the political correctness thing which you're referring to, I mean, that is something I wish his candidacy would 
prompt us to have a more serious discussion about. There are a lot of Americans who feel muzzled. They feel um, that they can no longer have certain sorts of conversations because if they misstep with a word or whatever, um, they'll be flayed for it. Um, that's on my mind now. We're sitting here on a college campus. Um, I think a lot of Americans read the stories um, about some of the uh, fights that have gone on on college campuses, mm-hmm. some of the speakers who've been protested or censored or you know not allowed. Um, I don't think that is unrelated to Trump's popularity with certain voters. I think those two, two things are very much related. Um, and I think, uh, I think Donald Trump is vulgar, um, and I'm not a fan of all of these things he says, but I think the reaction to them as, wow, that's a sort of authenticity or an audacity or a, or a just sort of directness that I'm missing, I think we need to look at that and ask, are we allowing people to have the sorts of conversations in our country? And are we not demonizing people? Are, are, are we being so quick to demonize people when they say the wrong thing or think of something that's not perfect? Has that led us into this place that's not where we really meant to go? Well, you know, uh, I'm really interested this, in this at, in my position, you know, at the, at the University of Chicago as the director of the Institute of Politics. We've had these discussions. We've had some of these uh, disputes and what you hear uh, from young people is, well, we want a safe space, uh, a right. safe space. But a safe space is defined as people not saying stuff that offends us. Right, right. And I have um, questions about safe spaces. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I understand. No, I, I have deep. <laughs> listen, an institute of politics is fundamentally about free and open debate. Right. If you don't have free and open debate, then you don't really have democracy. And um, so, uh, I, I mean, I share your concerns about it, and, uh, but it's consonant with something else you've written about, which is that we, we also now have the ability through the modern media environment to kind of select uh, uh, our own outlets. So instead of uh, informing, we, we, are, we find outlets that affirm and affirm our points yeah. of view. And so we, we're becoming more isolated. This is, this is one of my very, very biggest concerns is the degree to which this mechanism, the internet, cyberspace, that should theoretically be the most, be, be, a, be a, an agent of broadening your world. In fact, people are using it to narrow their worlds. All of these TV stations enable them to find three that say the same thing, which is the thing they want to hear all the time. All of these websites, all of these social media feeds, people curate a reality in which they can dwell um, that never challenges a single thing that they believe, that's pure affirmation, pure echo chamber. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons we can't talk to each other anymore. I think it's a big force in accelerated, more extreme partisanship. Um, Where's the common ground when everybody is curating an ideological and cultural universe precisely to his or her liking? And there's enough of that out there that they can dwell there 24-7. I meet people who feel like they're well-informed, but if you ask them which blogs they have bookmarked, which social media feeds they get, and what they watch on TV, it's it's a single note over and over and over again. That's not being well-informed. That's being almost like ossified. Right. And it does contribute to this, this notion of disqualification that you talked about earlier, where if you have a different point of view than me, I'm disqualifying you as a legitimate uh, proponent of a, a, you know, of a point of view. That's right. Um, so I... Uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't run through, through a few things before we, we close out this conversation. One is, it, this has been an extraordinary period in American social history as it relates to, to uh, uh, 
civil rights, human rights. Um, and um, how, how do you characterize this and how do you explain it? How do you explain the, the uh, kind of rapid change? It's almost like watching the, the Berlin Wall fall, the gay marriage movement. Mm, yeah. And uh, how, how did, what were the elements that led to that? There were many, I and mean, we could fill a whole program, but one above all others, people came out. People began to be honest about their lives. And when Americans realized, this is not some abstraction, this is my beloved nephew, this is my beloved sister, you know, this is the teacher who was so meaningful to me, this is the student who was such a standout, this is the quarterback. When people realized just who we were talking about, and that these were people they loved and people they respected and people they wanted to be happy. Once that number of honest, open people reached a critical mass, there was no other direction for this story to go. And it's different from some of our other culture hot-button debates because it's hard to see who the losers are. You know, it's often been noted that the needle keeps moving and has moved dramatically um, when it comes to gay marriage and gay rights, but not at all on abortion. Right. Well, the abortion debate is entirely different because if you are um, pro-life, if you believe life begins at conception, there is a loser to the law going one way. There, there's, there are stakes here. Who loses when two women who love each other or two men who love each other marry? Who really loses? I mean, that defeat, that loss is a pretty theoretical one. And so I think that also has something to do with how rapidly this political issues moved. I think the other element of this is that I think young people are far more tolerant uh, in their views, are, are more open, are more uh, share that point of view. They they don't see it in the threatening terms that older That's Americans. That's because they are. grew up with gay people all around them. You know, when I was growing up, when you were growing up, I, I didn't know any gay adults. You know, in the public eye, there were no gay adults. It was something that was whispered about. When I realized I was gay, whenever that was, 11, 12, 13, it was a really frightening thing because I had to kind of go hunt for information about what that was going to mean. And I literally, I remember going into libraries and bookstores to try to find books that explained to me exactly how isolated am I going to be? Um, how many other people are there like me? There was almost nothing out there. The the kids who are here at University of Chicago now, they've grown up in a world where on TV, um, even in public life, um, you know, in magazines, they, this has been being hashed out, and it's not this incredibly exotic, unusual, weird thing, homosexuality. When you were a, a kid and you were going through that uh, period of recognition, um, did you have people you could turn to to talk to? Uh, I think I started talking to some friends when I was maybe 16 or 17 in a very, I mean, like maybe two or three of them in a very hushed voice way. Um, no, I mean, it really wasn't until I got to college. And I remember, you know, I've written about the college admissions process and yes. all that. I remember when I was, I ended up only applying to two colleges because it was whatever. But I remember when I was going through my list of colleges I would apply to, it was entirely driven by being a closeted gay man. I only was looking at colleges that were in cities or that were so big that they were their own cities. Because I thought if I'm going to have any shot in hell at meeting people like myself in a romantic life, I can't go to Williams College out in the boondocks with just 1,200 students or whatever it is. So it was funny. I mean, it was, it was a real went force. Went to University of North Carolina. I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a real force. I mean, it, it actually kind of dictated decisions I was making. You asked me why I went into journalism before. I think one reason 
was I immediately noticed when I started working at the campus newspaper in Chapel Hill that journalists were a fairly open-minded, non-judgmental, progressive group of people. And I thought, I'm not going to go into banking because I want to live as an open gay man. And I think I can probably do that in a newsroom, but maybe not as easily you know, at an investment bank. You, uh, you mentioned um, you wrote a book about college admissions. First of all, why did you write a book about that? And we're sitting on one of those campuses that are highly competitive uh, right now. Just get, encapsulate your message to young people. We're, I'm going to make a couple of commencement speeches in the next couple of weeks. We're at a time when this is on people's yeah. mind. Um, I wrote the book because I was uh, noticing, um, as I watched nieces and nephews go through it, uh, children or friends, I was noticing how much more exponentially frenzied the uh, the quest to get into a certain kind of selective school had become since I was a teenager. And it felt pretty intense then. I grew up in a family that cared about the Ivy League and all that. Um, and it just didn't square with what I knew of people's lives and of success. When I reflected, you talked about what a bizarro journalism, journalistic career I've had. Well, because of that, I've, I've become familiar with the biographies of or written about hundreds of accomplished people in scores of different disciplines. When I ask myself, what's the common thread in their lives? It's not a fancy diploma. Some of them have one, many don't. And so I felt like we've entered this period where there was this ridiculous myth that your life could be made or unmade by the selectiveness of the school you got into that had no relation to life as I saw it being lived by adults who'd gone through all of this. And I felt like somebody really needed to tell children and parents, you know, because the level of anxiety today is just insane. It's beyond insane. And you know, you're, and you're seeing the fruit of it on college campuses. Um, I don't know about here, but if you talk to college administrators, they're spending more money on mental health services on campus than they ever have, and they have more takers, they have more clients, more patients. Um, that is partly related yeah. to what those kids have gone through in terms of the admissions ringer and the feeling that if they are not absolutely perfect, they won't get into the right school and they'll be behind the eight ball forevermore. It's a lie, it's ridiculous, uh, uh, it's a destructive lie. I should add though, as a proponent of mental health, uh, of mental health generally, that it's also good that when people need help that they have a place to get Of course, it, you know? of course. But we, want, <laughs> we don't want to be creating mental unhealth um, along the way, you know. I, I, and just fin finishing up on your incredible journey, uh, I missed the five years, uh, four or five years when you were the food critic for mm -hmm. the New yeah. York Times. And I, I know that you, you've written also, you wrote a book about your own struggles with Wade and so on. So... Um, and I'm trying to do a, an, an elegant segue from mental health to asking you why a guy who struggled with weight wanted to be a food critic in the first place. But how, how did that, that all come together? Um, I didn't set my sights on that. That came to me. Uh, and when, You were the Rome Bureau chief I was chief the Rome Bureau the chief, and I'd been, I was two years into what is usually like a three and a half Good year place stand. for food. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had gotten more and more into food, I think, because I was in Italy. Yeah. Um, and I'd become a sort of someone people would come to for Rome re restaurant recommendations. And I kind of realized that in a very just kind of organic way, I'd become something of a restaurant maven. Um, and uh, the times came to me uh, and I realized that there was it's hard to explain, but there was something about the kind of disciplined enforced scheduled eating of restaurant critic that would actually be good for me because my problem with food was this sort of spastic binge purge relationship that wasn't going to be uh, possible if you were eating on a schedule every day. Yeah, well, I, you and I shared an experience of being on the campaign. I gained 30 pounds when I was working for 
Obama. Right. You know, I think I gained something like 40 on the Bush campaign. Yeah. yeah. I used to, uh, I wrote about this. It used to drive me nuts because they'd bring in his lean fish and his his lean meat or his fish and his fresh vegetables and everything. And they'd say, oh, you guys, your fried chicken and pizza is over there. And my conclusion was that they thought his health was important to the future of the republic, but the rest <laughs> of us could die. And that would, no one would miss us. But he was good about never straying over to that pizza or chicken, right? I mean, he, 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 he was... He's, he's very, very disciplined, disciplined yeah. yeah. And he, Michelle Obama seems to be the same way. Not, she's very disciplined, and she's also an enforcer of discipline, right. so that helps him be disciplined. But, no, they're very, they're very good about that. Frank Bruni, I love your column. I love your sensibilities, and I'm really grateful that you're here with us today. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.